How's the air up there? Exoplanet Atmospheres, this week on Planetary Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan. This week, that final frontier is 63 light years away, where water and methane have been found in the atmosphere of a planet circling another star. Our guest is Mark Swain, leader of a team that has just announced discovery of the first organic material on a so-called exoplanet. Bill Nye, the Science Guy's commentary, says we can start saving up for a ticket to space, while Emily Lakdawalla's Q&A explains why virtually every large object in space is round like a U-head, as Columbus once told Bugs Bunny. We'll wrap up the show with plasma and edible space debris shared with our friend Bruce Betts, who will share his and our view of the night sky and a new space trivia question. Mars is at the top of our headline review. If you dig the red planet, you'll probably like the extensive report on spirit and opportunity by my colleague, AJS Rail. It's at planetary.org. You'll learn that Spirit is weathering her third Martian winter in better-than-expected fashion, while Opportunity continues to explore the vicinity of Victoria Crater. And both rovers are safe from what appeared for a few days to be a major budget challenge. By the way, we expect Steve Squires, the Mars Exploration Rover Principal Investigator, to be our guest on next week's show. Turning to Earth's other next-door neighbor, Emily Lakdawalla's space blog reports that the European Space Agency's Venus Express is still looking for signs of volcanoes under the thick clouds of second rock from the sun. That's at planetary.org as well, naturally. NASA has decided to push back the next space shuttle launch, but just by a few days. Delivery of the big external tank was delayed by all the bad weather the eastern U.S. has been suffering through. Discovery is now scheduled to lift off on May 31st with a big Japanese module for the increasingly international International Space Station. Here's Bill Nye. Hey, hey, Bill Nye, the planetary guy here, vice president of the Planetary Society. For many years, I applied to be an astronaut. I wanted to fly in space and show my viewers the world below them. Well, now people are selling tickets to fly in space. These are not $20 million rides with the Russian Space Agency. No, these are $200,000 rides. That's a factor of 100 cheaper. And you say, how popular could that be? Who's got $200,000? Well, my friends, over 1,500 people have signed up for this ticket with uh, spacecraft developed by Scaled Composites and funded by Virgin Galactic, which is based on Virgin Airways, which I guess is based on the Virgin Islands. It's in the spirit of exploration. So these people who buy these tickets will get what they say is five minutes in space. That's five minutes of black sky. And many, many seconds of those five minutes are going to be in weightlessness, zero G. And when you look down, you will not see a big expanse like a nice flat map you might put on your desk or dashboard. No, you will see the curve of the earth below you. So it is to be presumed that these people's perspective of our planet will be changed forever. And then perhaps they will live and work among us and change us all through the spirit of exploration by flying in space. It's a remarkable time to be alive. The price has come down by a factor of 105 years. Who knows what will happen in the next 10? Well, thanks for listening. Bill Nye, the Planetary Guy, here on Planetary Radio. Planetary Radio. 
It's mind-boggling, really. How can we be learning so much about faraway planets no one has actually seen? The count is way over 200, and last summer a team of scientists announced that they had found water vapor in the atmosphere of one of these exoplanets. Now we hear from the journal Nature that this same gas giant circling a star 63 light-years away has methane. My colleague Amir Alexander wrote a great article about this a couple of weeks ago. We'll link to it from planetary.org slash radio. Methane isn't much of a molecule, really, but it is organic. And under the right conditions, you can end up with amino acids, the so-called building blocks of life. JPL research scientist Mark Swain led the team that made this discovery. I traveled to the big NASA lab just a few days ago so that I could sit down with Mark and learn more. Mark, I'm glad we could get together uh, to talk live here once again at JPL, where uh, where so much of the action takes place. And it was only a few weeks ago that you guys had this article that appeared in Nature that uh, had more to tell us about this uh, very romantically named uh, exoplanet HD 189733b, which we learned last summer has water vapor, and now we find it has organics. That's right. What we've uh, just detected is the presence of methane together with the water vapor. And that's really exciting because this is a stepping stone to what we'd really like to do, which is to study organic molecules on planets where life could exist. Now, I want to be clear from the outset, this is a really hot planet, <laughs> and there's no life here. Um, but it's, uh, it's a very important demonstration of the techniques that we'll use uh, to study the types of planets which might be more hospitable. This is a crazy place. I mean, it's bigger than Jupiter. It's ridiculously close to its star. goes around it in 2.2 days. I mean, no wonder it's hot. That's right. If you were to stand on, um, well, you'd actually have to float in a balloon because there's probably no surface as we know it on this gas giant. But if you were to be on 189733B and look up, into the sky, the sun would be about 15 degrees across. <laughs> so that's kind of like holding up your arms at arm's length, and that's about the diameter of two and a half basketballs. Uh, if this planet hadn't been found, would we be far enough along? In other words, are these characteristics of this little solar system so special that they've allowed us to make these discoveries sooner than we might have otherwise? Well, yes and no, and the there's a subtlety here. This is this is the best target to study. Uh, it has a very deep transit. It's uh, close by. It's a bright star, so it has many characteristics that make it easy to observe. But one of the really exciting things we learned from these observations is that the Hubble Space Telescope today has enough sensitivity to make similar types of measurements for about a half dozen exoplanets. Wow. And that's really exciting. Um, we're looking forward to starting that process. And when you say we, you are part of a team. Uh, in fact, you were just uh, on the phone to uh, London a few moments before we spoke uh, to, to one of your colleagues. That's right, Giovanna Tianetti, who's our uh, theorist who works on our team. And what she does is model the physics of how these atmospheres work. When we measure a spectrum, uh, we actually have to use a model to figure out how much water there is, how much methane, what the temperature profile is. Mm. And so the, the physical modeling is an absolutely integral part of this team effort, and uh, it is essential to making the results what they are. 
in spite of the fact that you're using some of the best instruments ever available to humanity, we're basically talking about good old-fashioned spectroscopy here. Absolutely. Uh, that is one of the real breakthroughs in exoplanet science in the last, oh, I don't, I want to say since 2004, um, a pair of papers by Drake Deming and uh, David Charbonneau, which showed that infrared emission could be detected from these exoplanet atmospheres. And they did that with, uh, with, cam- with regular infrared cameras. And this really launched the whole field of kind of light curve analysis of emitted radiation. Now, we're making an absorption spectrum. Uh, and that's, uh, uh, again, there, there was a visible counterpart of this that was done by David Charbonneau clear back in uh, 2001, 2002, hmm. mm-hmm. and uh, detected sodium in the atmosphere of 209458b, another famous exoplanet. Uh, and so the, uh, the application of existing instruments, just learning how to use them better, uh, has had trem- – and this work has been done by a number of teams – has really have made – given us tremendous observational progress in learning about these exoplanets. Detection of molecules is really significant because molecules act as probes of the atmosphere, and they allow you to characterize the composition and the conditions mm-hmm. and the chemistry. All of a sudden, it's a whole new set of questions, and it's uh, bringing us a much more detailed understanding of what's going on on these planets. You said absorption, which I guess is because we're really looking at the light or the heat from this star as it interacts with the atmosphere of this planet? That's right. This measurement was made during a transit. So from our point of view, during a transit, the planet seems to move across the stellar face. The the orbit has a a fortunate inclination, and so the, the planet crosses the parent star's face from the point of view of Earth. When that happens, the starlight filters through the planet's atmosphere right around the edges, around the limb of the planet. And what we do is we measure the absorption of the molecules that are in the planet's atmosphere as the starlight filters through. Mm. Uh, You can also use one of these systems where the orbit has this fortuitous alignment. These are transiting systems. You can make the measurement as the planet goes behind the star. Mm. And that gives you an emission spectrum. So you take the difference of star plus planet and just star. You subtract off the stellar component. Uh, and that is, uh, we're actually working on an emission spectrum for the same planet right now. Wait a minute, that sounds like the making of another paper. We'll ask JPL scientist Mark Swain about that possibility when Planetary Radio continues in a minute. I'm Robert Picardo. I traveled across the galaxy as the doctor in Star Trek Voyager. Then I joined the Planetary Society to become part of the real adventure of space exploration. The Society fights for missions that unveil the secrets of the solar system. It searches for other intelligences in the universe, and it built the first solar sail. It also shares the wonder through this radio show, its website, and other exciting projects that reach around the globe. I'm proud to be part of this greatest of all voyages, and I hope you'll consider joining us. You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website, planetary.org slash radio, or by calling 1-800-9-WORLDS. Planetary Radio listeners who aren't yet members can join and receive a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Our nearly 100,000 members receive the internationally acclaimed Planetary Report magazine. That's planetary.org slash radio. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. 
Exoplanets, or extrasolar planets, they circle distant stars. We found almost 300 of them, and astronomers and planetary scientists like Mark Swain and his international team are beginning to analyze their atmospheres. Mark is a scientist at the Jet Propulsion Lab in Southern California. He just mentioned before our break that his team is moving from transmission or absorption spectra to emission spectroscopy as they continue their research into a horribly hot yet revealing planet called HD 189733b. You alluded to more exciting news coming. I was going to bring this up till the end of our conversation, but could that, that have something to do with what you just said? Yes, it does. Um, the really exciting thing that we're working on in this next spectrum is localizing the molecular abundances. And so what a transmission spectrum does is it probes a very specific region of the atmosphere of the exoplanet, and that is the terminator region, the junction between mm. night and day. Mm-hmm. Now, these are tidally locked planets, these hot Jovians, so they always have one side that faces the parent star. And in that case, the, the, the atmosphere on that side, as we've already talked about, just gets an enormous amount of heat dumped into it. Mm. The w- atmospheres of these planets, in some cases, seem to circulate, move the heat around. They redistribute the heat. Uh, and so the night side um, is warmed by essentially the wind from the day side. The weather must be pretty amazing with that kind of temperature differential. Absolutely. Nonetheless, because one side is hotter and one side is colder, there are chemical differences you expect, um, particularly the carbon, uh, the carbon chemistry, the CO to the carbon monoxide to methane ratio can change and is, in fact, a diagnostic of the temperature conditions in the planet's atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we're really excited about is the day side, uh, the, I'm sorry, the secondary eclipse spectrum localizes the abundances on the day side. So what we're going to be able to do is actually localize the abundance differences from the day side to the terminator region. Help me with one term before we go into that more. You said secondary eclipse. Yes. Which means? The secondary eclipse is just when the planet goes behind the parent star. Oh, okay. And the transit or primary eclipse is when the planet goes in front of the parent star as viewed from Earth. So I don't know how much you're willing to say, because this is a paper that has not yet been submitted, much less published, uh, and we're, we're sensitive to that. But uh, I, I'm assuming that this is going to be able to tell us more about the chemical makeup of this, this atmosphere. That is certainly our hope. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll leave it at that and, and keep it general like that as well. One of the things that excites me so much about talking to folks like you, and just the ongoing discovery of exoplanet after exoplanet is uh, the fact that you guys are gradually filling in the Drake equation for us. And that, of course, this famous equation from Frank Drake that, that said, okay, here are the variables, line them up, and eventually at the end, you've got life elsewhere in the universe. Well, I think that while that is true, this is just one small step in what's a much larger picture. And I think that these particular results really anticipate the day when we're able to make the same sorts of measurements in planets uh, which would be hospitable to life. Mm -hmm. That will probably require uh, JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope. Um, And even James Webb will start that job, but it, it won't finish it. But you can at least begin to look forward to the time when these instruments, like the James Webb Scope, with its gigantic mirror, are going to start to tell us things about terrestrial planets, planets that are like the one we live on. Absolutely. 
Um, they may be, they'll be a little bigger, and they'll be around M stars. They won't be around G stars, so the star, their stellar primary will be cooler, mm-hmm. and that helps with the measurement because the contrast between the star and the planet is reduced, and uh, the contrast ratio is really the big problem here. It's not the absolute sensitivity. But yeah, James Webb will be able to do that science nicely. Hubble already has the sensitivity to study a Neptune mass planet around mm-hmm. an M star, and um, there is one well-known one, uh, which I'm sure a lot of people are looking forward to studying, uh, and that's GL436B. I'm sorry, GJ436B. Not that I would have known the difference, yeah. but uh, okay. <laughs> is is there any chance that uh, that these are going to get better names than this? Oh, I'm, I'm not in charge of the naming department, <laughs> and I, I'll be the first to admit that astronomers name their planets in a really boring way. What is intriguing about that Neptune-like planet that circles a, an M-class star? Well, in this case, the planet is cooler. It has a dayside temperature that has been inferred from some infrared measurements with Spitzer, and it's about 700 Kelvin. So it's considerably cooler than the 1,200 Kelvin dayside temperature of 189733b. It probably, uh, that planet GJ436b, probably has some type of surface, uh, at least there's some mo- theoretical uh, modeling that shows that it might. Mm-hmm. So it's again, it's again a stepping stone, but it's taking us measurements of that system will take us one step closer to really being able to look at a terrestrial type planet in the habitable zone. I got to come back to that topic of uh, the research that is not as far off even as the James Webb Telescope. Uh, are you hopeful that we will? be able to identify more complex molecules than methane, which, after all, is fairly simple, organic though it is. Uh, Yes, I am. I think we are actually in the infancy of exoplanet spectroscopy. Hmm. And there are a number of ideas out there among the cognoscenti which, uh, you know, which are really interesting and which essentially, you know, could be summarized along the lines of this Hubble result is really just a – it's just the beginning of the show. Mm. Uh, there are ideas to use different instruments to increase the sensitivity in various ways, um, to use Hubble in uh, other ways. So there are there, there are a lot of ideas out there, and um, we're, we're just at the beginning. We're about out of time. Any messages for the uh, shuttle crew that's going up there to repair the Hubble uh, before long? Oh, well, thank you very much for uh, your effort and hard work. Hubble's a fantastic instrument, and I really appreciate uh, NASA keeping it flying. Mark, thanks so much, and congratulations, and uh, we look forward to that next paper. Thank you very much. Mark Swain is a research scientist for the Jet Propulsion Lab here in, uh, well, near Pasadena, California, and uh, has led a team that has found for the very first time organic material, methane, on a planet circling a star other than our own. What could be more exciting than that? Well, What's Up is pretty exciting. Not quite as exciting, but uh, we'll be here with Bruce Betts for our uh, Dose of the Night Sky right after this visit by Emily. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, Why are planets round? We have round planets rather than cube-shaped or lumpy ones because objects with a lot of mass, including not only planets but also stars and even large moons and asteroids, become round under the force of their own gravity. 
The round shape is the shape that equalizes the potential energy felt by any point on the surface of a planet. On planets and stars that are made of gases and liquids, any piece of the planet that stuck out would immediately flow like water from the high place to the low place, evening out the surface into a round shape. Even when a body is mostly solid, such flow of mass from high areas to low areas does happen if you allow enough time. The four plus billion year old age of the solar system has been more than enough time to make round worlds out of places like Earth and Mars, the asteroid Ceres, and many of the large moons. However, as you get to smaller and smaller objects, like most of the asteroids, the smaller mass means a smaller force of gravity. Once you get sufficiently small, the internal compressive stress generated by the weight of rocks at high elevations is just not big enough to overcome the inherent strength of the materials that make up the body. So the flow never happens and the body never becomes spherical. Metal and rock are both inherently stronger than ice, so this transition from round to lumpy worlds happens at much smaller sizes for icy bodies than rocky ones. For this reason, there are probably many more round Kuiper Belt objects than there are round asteroids. Of course, even the largest planets aren't perfect spheres. To understand why that is, tune in to next week's show. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. He's here, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society, Bruce Betts, to uh, tell us about the night sky and do some other fun stuff. Hey, great conversation with Mark Swain, and I think we're going to be talking to him again soon. He's got more cool stuff. But I was at JPL, so I had to pick up stuff for you. <laughs> it's the best move they ever made was moving their store to the uh, visitor so smart. center. So smart. <laughs> you alone have made it an excellent They place. make a profit every month off of me, I'm sure. <laughs> I put them over the top. I'm part of the margin. Check this out, okay? We what have to get this get? to Alan Stern. Pluto Plasma! <laughs> That's for you. Here, take oh, it. it's for me? Yeah, cool. you can open it up. I, I ew, It looks ew, awful, doesn't it? It's gross as heck. It's yeah. it's got like what looks like egg white in some other kind of Inside liquid of gelatinous mass. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> I think it might be liquid oxygen, but uh, I'm not sure. That's uh, hazardous waste. Something for Alan. Something to look for with uh, when he gets to Pluto with uh, New Horizons. But uh, there you go. And then I got to. Uh, I'm sure it's completely scientifically accurate. I got to see these two astronaut. Space debris. Wow, space debris. They look remarkably like uh, knockoff M&Ms. They but, do uh... indeed. No, they're not. There's no M on them. <laughs> they're knockoffs. Clearly, they're space debris. They're generic. Look at that. Yeah, well, keep little... interviewing people up at JPL. That you bring food and toys. It's an old piece and of the Soyuz. Gelatinous right masses. No, you want no, one? no Soyuz right now. Thank okay, you. I'm, I'm going to have some. I had some for breakfast. Tell us about the night sky while I eat some of these. Okay, and then I... <laughs> <laughs> the night's could you crunch a little louder sure okay good we've got uh mars and saturn visible in the evening sky saturn over towards the west but still pretty high up uh shortly after sunset looking like a kind of bright orangish star-like object it is above orion if you think of orion such ways you can find it there then if you look farther to the east still very high but over towards the east you will see saturn looking yellowish and in leo and not far away within three degrees of saturn's uh, brightest star regulus in leo so making a kind of a nice pair in the night sky in the pre-dawn sky we've got jupiter 
Jupiter looking like an extremely bright star-like object, uh, low in the east, not long before dawn. You, did you want to? You can grab some more of those while I do this week in space history. I'll, I'll take a couple more. They're not really very good, but you know what do you expect <laughs> from space debris? It's space debris. I mean, come on, <laughs> uh, go for the it. The thrill is that they are <laughs> might maybe be from space. <laughs> this week in space history, of course, 1961, Yuri Gagarin becomes the first human in space. 1970, Apollo 13 launched and starts their fun. And 2001, a Mars Odyssey is launched. Mars Odyssey uh, is launched, still functioning fabulously in Mars orbit. Apollo 13, speaking of space debris, <laughs> still stuff out there, translunar, right? There is stuff. Oh, I don't know. It was traveling along with them. There must be some crap that's still floating around <laughs> up there from them. <laughs> yeah, you're eating it right now. <laughs> On to Random Space Fact! And big news. Next week, be sure to tune in. I think we're going to start a new contest based on Random Space Fact next week. So um, uh, tune in. It's going to be fun. It will indeed. When you go out and check out in a dark sky, unlike what we usually have here, check out the Milky Way, looking like that milky band of stuff up there in the sky. If you look off in the direction of Sagittarius, you're looking towards the galactic center. And in fact, the galactic bulge, so it's actually bigger and brighter in that direction towards Sagittarius. Uh, we actually, in our continuing continuing story of Professor Tyler Nordgren, as he travels around to national parks in the United States, making connections to space in all sorts of neat ways, and reporting on our website in Stars Above, Earth Below, you can check out some Truly spectacular pictures he took of the uh, the Milky Way rising uh, from Texas. I saw those. They're very beautiful. From incredibly dark, apparently, parts of Texas. I wanted to be with him so much. I want to be in those parks. Good luck. Thank you. You're welcome. On to the trivia contest, we asked you, who was the first non-Soviet, non-American person in space? Non-Soviet, non-American. And how'd we do? We did well. We did well. Got lots and lots of responses and um, not much disagreement about this. Uh, well, we had that's a, good. Well, there was a, apparently there was a Ukrainian guy, but that was when the Ukraine was still one of the Soviet Socialist Republics. So right. as I think you know, it was a, a fellow from what was then Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic. Indeed, Vladimir Remek yeah, on yeah. Soyuz 28 in 1978. Was he the pilot? That's what one person, one listener said. He was the, actually the pilot on that mission. Uh, someone else, actually, Torsten Zimmer, said that he is still around, Indeed. and he's a member of the European Parliament. Indeed. Hmm. No, I think, actually, his role was he collected uh, chocolate-flavored spaces. <laughs> for, for sale three decades later. Raised money for his campaign, no doubt. Yes, exactly. I think that's how it worked. Well, John Gallant got, got the uh, answer right, and he was the one randomly selected by Random.org. John Gallant, I don't have it in front of me, but I think he's from New York. Longtime listener, sends all kinds of entertaining stuff. First-time winner. John, congratulations. A T-shirt is on its way. All right, if you'd like your chance to win a T-shirt with the correct answer, randomly selected, answer the following question. What spacecraft crashed into the moon on April 10th, 1993? What spacecraft crashed into the moon April 10th, 1993? Go to planetary.org slash radio. Find out how to send us your answer. Was not a ranger. <laughs> <laughs> it was a ranger that got yeah lost. really really lost <laughs> thirty years late. Yeah, there it is. 
No, there's your clue. It was not a Ranger spacecraft. Please do that. If you win, you'll get a Planetary Radio t-shirt. All right, everybody. Go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about gelatinous masses from Pluto. <laughs> Thank you, and good night. Pluto plasma. Can you hear it jiggle? I'm going to crunch some more candy now. He's Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society. And he does join us every week here for What's Up. Join us next time for Mars Exploration Rover Principal Investigator Steve Squires. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. Have a great week.